every, every city would like to be a Boston or San Francisco that's not a Boston or San Francisco when it comes to the amount of research power and infrastructure. So is it a bad thing to try to aspire to be like those cities? Not necessarily, but will we ever be one of those cities? I, I'm not sure. It's possible. It's possible. I, you know, I'm an optimist at the end of the day. So I would like to see us um, be competitive at that level. But yeah, I think we're probably, we are where we are right now. And we're not there, that's for sure. I agree we're not there, but I see Amol's point. I mean, I think this speaks to what I was saying earlier, that there are different models of what we would label as success in, in biotechnology and in innovation. And I don't think we need to be Boston or San Francisco in order to succeed. I would prefer to say that Canada needs to find its own path to success and simply by the, you know, population and demographic differences between the Canada and the US, I would say in terms of all of the arguments we made earlier about critical mass and manufacturing platforms and even just the number of people we have here, the number of universities and and you know, the number of scientists we simply can't be the same as Boston or San Francisco. We're gonna to have to evolve into our own model of biotechnology and innovation success. Welcome everyone to Reboot Health. I'm your host, Amol Deshpande. This podcast is for anyone wanting to learn more about the digital health ecosystem. Whether you're new to the space and not quite sure how and where to start, or if you're already deep down the rabbit hole and just wanna learn from those ahead of you, this podcast is for you. We'll talk with the founders, investors, researchers, and clinicians changing healthcare to understand their trials, tribulations, and successes. In the process, we want to help you to uncover their know-how and also highlight the technology and trends shaping the future of digital health technology. Welcome to episode 15 of Reboot Health. Today, we have two guests on the show, Dr. Sheila Singh and Jason Moffat. Dr. Sheila Singh is Professor of Surgery and Biochemistry, Chief Pediatric Neurosurgeon at McMaster Children's Hospital, and Inaugural Director of the New Cancer Research Center at McMaster University. She holds a Tier 1 Senior Canada Research Chair in Human Brain Cancer Stem Cell Biology and is Scientific Founder and prior CEO of Empirica Therapeutics, a startup company focused on brain cancer therapeutics. Empirica was acquired by Century Therapeutics Incorporated in June 2020, resulting in the creation of a Canadian subsidiary, Century Therapeutics Canada. Dr. Singh is currently studying the regulation of brain tumor-initiating cell signaling pathways in glioblastoma, brain metastases, and childhood medulloblastoma, with an ultimate goal of selectively targeting the BTIC with appropriately tailored drug and molecular therapies. Dr. Jason Moffat is a full professor in the Donnelly Centre and Department of Molecular Genetics in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. He is a Canada Research Chair in Functional Genomics of Cancer and the Ann and Max Tannenbaum Chair in Molecular Medicine. His lab is developing and applying genome-scale genetic perturbation technologies and analytical approaches to explore genotype-phenotype relationships in human and mouse cells to find therapeutic targets for cancer. Dr. Moffat founded and is Director of the Platform of Advanced Cell Engineering at the Donnelly Centre and is co-founder of multiple biotechnology startup companies. Sheila and Jason, welcome to Reboot Health. Uh, so, so before we get started with both of you, uh, maybe you could provide the audience with a, with a little bit of a high-level arc of what led each of you to the intersection of health innovation and specifically founding a biotechnology venture. Sure. 
Amol, thank you so much for inviting us to appear on your show. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit first about my career arc. I am a neurosurgeon and a scientist, and um, I uh, did all of my sort of long sort of training period and ultimately ended up coming to McMaster University to practice because they had a really ideal situation on both the scientific and the uh, medical side for me in that they had just created an institute called the Stem Cell and Cancer Research Institute. And I, of course, am a stem cell biologist who studies brain cancer. So that was a perfect setup for me. And then on the medical side, my mentor was retiring from pediatric neurosurgery and needed someone to come and take over his practice. So it was quite ideal, aside from the fact that I also grew up. I was born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario. So um, I started my career off in a very classically sort of academic way. And I suppose that I had always seen myself as a pure academic, someone who would always be, you know, um, bridging uh, sort of a medical practice with the scientific research practice and going back and forth between the two worlds presented a very satisfying career for me and um, enjoyed that career very much until, of course, McMaster um, does a very thorough job with their scientists and making sure that our intellectual property is, is protected. And I think it was one of the days we were talking to one of our patent officers when um, you know, he asked me if I realized you know, how much value there was in some of the work we were doing in brain cancer, which had a lot of translational potential. And really there was a bit of a, a, a change in my career path there mm. because I really honestly had never visualized myself um, thinking about science from the side of innovation and potential for commercialization. And I have to say it was really my trainees that pushed me in that direction. Um, I had several trainees who were on a MyTax fellowship, and they were interacting avidly with industry partners and with business. And they came back and basically said to me, your preclinical data is more advanced than that of any company we've worked with. We really should be talking to industry partners. And I think that really spurred the entire, spurred the entire collaboration. But what really started our specific company, so Jason and I co-founded Empirica Therapeutics together, and that obviously was born out of a very large, comprehensive scientific program we were co-leading that was looking at novel target discovery in the very aggressive and deadly brain cancer glioblastoma. So the reason that that whole program started was kind of, if you think about it, I think it was a sort of a marriage of two different fields of science that came together in the best possible way. Because I was a cancer biologist with all of these beautiful models of, of glioblastoma that were patient-derived from our own patients in Hamilton Health Sciences. And Jason, of course, is what I would call a world-leading biotechnology expert. He has built and developed and created all kinds of beautiful biotechnological platforms. And one day in 2015, he walked into my office with what he assured us was about $100,000 street value of an antibody that he had made against CD133, which is, of course, the key marker expressed on brain tumor initiating cells. And he walked into my office with some of his colleagues and he said, hey, Sheila, we were wondering, could we test out our new antibody? And we heard you have some really great models of glioblastoma. And that's how the interface happened to lead to the discovery that became the intellectual property that was um, encompassed within our company. So, so I guess I would say overall that it would be serendipity. I never saw myself going in the direction of innovation. It was an opportunity and a multidisciplinary collaboration um, that presented itself to, to lead us down this path. Jason, how about you? I, I know you're a multiple founder, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about what your journey was like. 
Sure. Um, first of all, thanks for having having me here, and also Sheila. It's a it's a nice to speak with you. Um, I guess my my story goes all the way back to my undergrad, where uh, I was a student in third year, and the department I was in um, decided they wanted to start up a co-op program. And I was I I applied to this, and I was fortunate to be the only one to get a job. Uh, so I ended up going to Boehringer Ingelheim in uh, Montreal, and I worked there for a year, and then I switched over and worked at Merck for another year to complete my uh, co-op undergrad degree. And when I was working at both of those pharma companies, it became uh, really clear to me how they were trying to develop drugs and the in the path and the opportunity for people and how academics could um, contribute to that process, especially uh, from the context of antibodies, because you can build antibodies now synthetically uh, through genetics. And I'm classically trained as a geneticist. So it was it was sort of an easy transition uh, to start to build out antibodies um, and GBM or brain cancer was one of the um, major diseases that we were thinking about in the lab and Sheila came to mind. Wow, fascinating. We're, we're, we're gonna, I, I'm really curious about your journey as well, Jason. We're gonna get a couple of, couple of questions sort of later on. I, I, I wanna jump, um, Sheila, one of, the, one of the TED Talks I saw you gave, it was TEDx, I think, in, in Hamilton, 2012 on glioblastoma and the role of stem cells. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great talk, but one of the most interesting statements you said in the middle of it, and it still resonates with me now is, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's, quote, I need to go beyond medicine into the field of biology to learn more. Could you elaborate on what you meant by that? And, and if we take a step back, what I'd love to hear from both of you is, you know, COVID's happened. There's a lot of sort of news articles on biotechnology. Everyone seems to know their type of vaccine, which, you know, you couldn't say for tetanus or measles or mumps. No one really cares. Are we in a new paradigm shift in, in biotechnology and its sort of relationship to medicine? Maybe I could have both of you guys sort of opine on that. Absolutely. Um, Amol, I'll answer the first question. Um, I think the absolute best thing for me is the paradigm of the two Christophers. And I did share that in the TED Talk, but let me use that paradigm to give you the best possible answer to what I meant by that quote. Um, so the two Christophers, of course, were two little boys that I met during my medical training on my pediatric neurosurgery rotation. And they both had the same um, pediatric malignant brain cancer, which is called medulloblastoma. And it was, uh, you know, quite uh, the reason they made such an impression on me as pretty much every patient does, but these two especially because they came in close to the same time with the same diagnosis, with the same name, and both were five years old. And so I spent every day um, involved in every aspect of these children's medical care from their surgery to their post-operative care. Um, and then as they remained on and started their radiation, their craniospinal irradiation and their chemotherapy and, and the rehabilitation from the significant neurological deficits they suffered. So what I recognize is in caring for both of these children, they were identical in every way that we measure in the medical world. So by that, I mean, we did the same gross total resection surgery for both of them. They both had the same diagnosis. When you looked under the microscope at the medulloblastoma, both of them were the same pathological subtype, classical. Both of them had the same standard of care. They were enrolled in the same chemo radiotherapy protocol. And yet one Christopher survived. 
And he went all the way out to five years, which when you get to five years survivorship with medulloblastoma, then you're cured. And the other Christopher died eight months um, post-surgery. And I remember thinking to myself, everything I've learned in neurosurgery has taught me that these children were the same. They were quite similar in every way. And I realized that no matter how much I studied about neurosurgery, no matter how much I learned about medicine, I would never understand the true reasons why one Christopher survived and the other Christopher died unless I took a deeper dive into the understanding of molecular biology. And it was shortly after I met the two Christophers, I mean, they really presented an epiphany for me in my career, that I decided to enroll in the uh, surgeon scientist program and undertake my PhD during my neurosurgery residency. Wow. Jason, what do you, I'm curious, you know, genetics um, is, is really sort of growing by leaps and bounds, you know, talk about Moore's law with, with chips and, you know, the cost of sequencing genetics is going down faster than Moore's law. Is it somewhat frustrating for you as a scientist to see the advances that are happening and then see where clinical medicine is today? I think, yeah, that's a great question. Um, absolutely. But it's also, it's also an incredible opportunity. I think, um, as you mentioned with sequencing, you know, we can, we can sequence genomes now, um, very easily and quickly. We're 20 years out from the human genome, the first announcement of the human genome sequence. And to answer your first question, do you, do you think, that we're in a paradigm shift in terms of medicine biology. And I think we are because we have the human genome sequence and because we have all of these incredible technologies ha that have come online in the last 20 years, including advances in sequencing, uh, CRISPR technology is, is amazing because now we can, we can manipulate anywhere in the genome that, you know, this was not even thinkable 20 years ago. Uh, and now it's doable. So I, I think we are in a paradigm shift, but you're absolutely right. The, there's still a wide gap between what we can do clinically and what we understand from an ad, academic perspective, and we have to narrow that somehow. I was going to get in this later, but I'm, I, it's just it's 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 annoying me. How how did you two meet? Because because Sheila, it sounds like you started in a very sort of clinically focused domain, and then sort of went into the science. And 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 Jason, you're in the lab. Did your labs just happen to be in the same place? Because you guys are now you know one's in Hamilton, one's in Toronto. For people who don't know, that's about sort of say 45 minutes apart. How did how did you guys sort of come together for a collaboration? Yeah, so that's a great question. And fortunately, um, there are these multidisciplinary research collaboratives that the province is smart enough to invest in. And that that kind of thing brings together scientists like Jason and I, a clinician scientist like me and a peer scientist like Jason. Um, and that was the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research. Um, we actually came together through a funding program on translational brain cancer research um, that was undertaking application of all of these beautiful biotechnological platforms um, to do a deeper dive to try to understand brain cancer. And I think it was a, a seminar run by OICR through this program where Jason and I first started talking about brain cancer. And um, that's the wonderful thing, too, about the geography of Southern Ontario in terms of the main universities that are, you know, that have both medical schools and are taking on, you know, serious basic uh, uh, cancer research. Um, we do have a critical mass of researchers, you know, between Queens, Western, McMaster, Toronto, Ottawa, 
And it's not that hard for us to bridge the geography and get together, especially when the OICR sees fit to bring researchers from those areas together to solve a problem based on expertise. So um, yeah, so that's how we did first meet. And again, I think we followed each other's progress um, in terms of the papers Jason published. I was always fascinated by the amazing new technologies that he was introducing to Toronto. Jason developed the first shRNA um, facility here at U of T, and he also developed a CRISPR facility that has helped uh, way more scientists than just beyond his lab. So, so I was reading his papers, catching up with things, and he was clearly hearing about our GBM models. And I have to credit Jason with being the one who realized, you know, we, we need both. You need the beautiful patient-derived models and the mm -hmm. cancer biology. Um, you need exceptional models to test any hypothesis in science. And those that are patient-derived are one step closer to translation because you're already looking at human cells and the human genome. And then for me, I'm not going to succeed just looking at cells from a patient that are in a dish or in a mouse. It's really the combination of the advances in, in genomics and biotechnology and functional genomics combined with the patient-derived models that will take your science to the next level. It's amazing. Jason, are you going to push back on any of that, or are you going to just say ditto? <laughs> um, no, I think, I guess I was always, I was aware of when I was doing my postdoc um, at MIT, uh, Sheila had published her PhD paper, and there was a lot of talk about it, actually. So this goes back a few years ago now, and that's where CD133 was identified as a brain uh, tumor initiating marker. And so um, we, we had done some work on that in my lab as well when I first started it. And so I was always interested in seeing if we could try to translate it further. And she was one of the obvious people to try to work with, well, the obvious person to try to work with. Yeah, so I guess you could say CD133 biology and questions about it is what brought us together to ask <clears throat> these questions further. We were so intrigued by this one receptor um, that is actually widely expressed across all normal stem cells as well as cancer stem cell populations. It's actually the most uh, frequently used marker of cancer stem cells in the world. And yet we know nothing about its biology. It's just that, a marker. And it's a five transmembrane domain protein. So it sits there on the surface looking for all the world like it wants to signal with something, but we don't understand what it's signaling with. And so Jason was intrigued from the signaling side, trying to understand the mechanics of how does it get from the nucleus to the plasma membrane? How does it transport? How does it traffic in the cell? And I was interested in it from the perspective of why is it so important to driving these glioblastoma cancer stem cells? So again, we're looking at this, I think it's really CD133 that brought together our different questions. Both of those questions are essential to trying to understand how to target CD133, which brought us one step closer to the sort of translational and therapeutic development discovery that we made together. Got it. Let, let's, let's double click a little bit on sort of the technology or sort of underpinning this, which is regenerative medicine. Um, Sheila, I know, I know in previous talks, you've talked about a sort of people who run known you know, to me, until I started sort of looking this up, were James Till and Ernest McCullough. Feel free to speak about it. I, you know, I think most people in Canada have heard about all the great work that CCRM has been doing, um, and I believe they're, you know, they're very much embedded in into Hamilton. What I'm curious about is where are we in terms of leaders of the field in 2022? Are we still leading sort of the the innovation in that area, or is it just sort of bench side stuff where we're at and and leading? So, in other words, 
how are we doing in translation of regenerative medicine from the bench to the bedside? That is a wonderful question. And I think first I want to start by acknowledging the, as, as you mentioned, Amol, the tremendous history of discovery, of basic discovery in stem cell biology. That's where I think Canada really hits above its weight. You know, Canadian scientists have made all of the seminal discoveries in the field. So from Till and McCulloch, who were the first people back in the late 60s and early 70s, they actually discovered hematopoietic stem cells. Then we had Sam Weiss, who's an amazing scientist in Calgary, now heads up the CIHR Neuroscience uh, Institute. Um, but back in 1992, he was the first person to discover mammalian neural stem cells that exist in the subventricular zone of mice and of humans. And so thinking about all of the discoveries, the seminal discoveries, after that came John Dick, who discovered leukemic stem cells. So if you, th if you think about it, the kind of evil version of the normal hematopoietic stem cells would be the leukemic stem cells. And then along came Peter Dirks and myself, who back in 2003, as Jason said, discovered the evil version of neural stem cells. And actually, I applied all of the technologies that Sam Weiss developed in 1992 to brain cancers in order to discover these brain cancer stem cells. And so if you look at it, the way I like to look at it is stem cell biologists love hierarchies where there's one, <clears throat> one clone on the top and then there's all these subclonal daughter cells that come out. We actually have a hierarchy of stem cell science starting with Till and McCulloch. And Till and McCulloch were, I had the wonderful pleasure of meeting Jim Till in his office at Princess Margaret Hospital. He must have been in his 80s when I met him. And I was pregnant with my second child just finishing my PhD. And I remember going to meet him in his office and we had this wonderful conversation. He was such a humble man for the enormity of what he's accomplished. But he told me, you know, I made this discovery accidentally. And he took me through the whole story of how it was just a side observation that he noticed these little bumps on the spleen that ended up being the colonies that are actually colonies formed from a single hematopoietic stem cell. And to be honest, my discovery was also very serendipitous. We didn't know whether we would find cancer stem cells and brain cancers. And I had the best guides because, of course, John Dick, I was lucky that he sat on my PhD committee. So here's the benefit of the critical mass I was talking to you about earlier. All those people were there to help me along with, with the discovery I made. So we actually had this beautiful hierarchy of discoveries that took us through time. Now, to finally answer your question about how close are we to translation, I think it's a very long arc. And we're not there yet because we've discovered so much about cancer stem cells, their phenotype, their biology, the genetic makeup of them. You know, John Dick has recently discovered epigenetic signals that drive the leukemic stem cells. So has Peter Dirks with brain cancer stem cells. But where we haven't gotten to quite yet is figuring out how to target them effectively and to design drugs and therapeutics against them. But I think that's where we have to be patient. Um, when I started with my career, I remember um, a lecturer at the Terry Fox Research Institute said the average time of discovery of, uh, of a biological discovery to the creation of an FDA approved drug is actually 26 years. And I do think that arc is definitely being compressed now. I think we're much faster now because of all of the advances in genomics and otherwise. We're much faster to, to create the drugs now. But for cancer stem cells, we're not there yet. So we haven't fully delivered. And I think that's where Jason and I feel a little bit like we're, we're coming together because we do want to deliver on that promise. We want to deliver a drug, an immunotherapy that targets a cancer, cancer stem cell population to really, to really deliver on the promise of what Till and McCulloch initially discovered. How, how, would you, how would you rate Canada 
today in terms of sort of leading that field? Jason, any thoughts and or, or, or Sheila? What, what, what do you like? Where, where do we? Yeah, I'm not going to say where do we rank specifically, but but just overall in terms of sort of the innovation side of things on regenerative medicine, are we are we are we keeping up with the rest of the world? I think I think Canada is keeping pace with the rest of the world. I guess I think regenerative medicine is a challenging field to build a drug within, um, but I think Canada is definitely keeping up. Uh, I think there's been some amazing additional discoveries after telemacolic, including IPS cells from Yamanaka. I think that's also fueled uh, almost a, a whole new generation of um, regenerative biology that, that people have been uh, tackling. So I think we're keeping up, but the world is also pushing very hard to, to try to translate the use of regenerative medicine in different diseases. And I think um, that, to be honest with you, that's a tricky question to answer without sounding like we're unpatriotic. Yeah. I mean, I was born and raised in Hamilton. Jason, Jason was born and raised Northern in North Atlantic. Bay. Yeah. yeah. And so we're very, very Canadian. We're proud Canadians. But I have to say, Amol, I think there are some things um, where we're lacking in terms of um, the, the pipeline, pipeline for developing biotechnology. And there's a lot of uh, the federal government has definitely noted this, especially as you mentioned, co the COVID pandemic has highlighted some of our weaknesses in the area of biomanufacturing, you know, in terms of our, our vaccine development plans and this kind of thing. I do think Canada has realized we've lagged behind other countries in this regard. And I think it's because we're lacking key infrastructure that could subserve multiple different biotechnological sectors. Um, and if we can develop those centralized biomanufacturing platforms, I think that that's something that could advance some of the stem cell and regenerative medicine discoveries that have happened. But I, I feel as if we're always in danger of losing some of our innovative discoveries to be developed um, with our neighbors south of the border. And so that's, that's a constant tension for Canadians. I think our biotech sector is definitely nascent and developing and promising, but I think we need to really fuel it for us to facilitate success. So, so thankfully, both of you did find each other, and in 2018, you got together and you formed Empirica Therapeutics. Just for context for the audience, tell me, tell me a little bit about Empirica Therapeutics and why was it created? And, and specifically, you know, there's a lot of ways to get technology out of the lab into the hands of eventually clinical trials and, and eventually the patients. Why specifically did the two of you guys decide to form a, you know, a startup? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think we started where you always start when you have intellectual property, which is you do a patent search and you try to figure out how novel is your discovery. And of course, our discovery was our, our prime discovery was actually composed of two things. One was, I guess you'd say the materials part of the patent, which was Jason's unique antibody. He developed an antibody against CD133 that was called RW03 that was highly sensitive, highly specific and highly selective. Um, for these brain tumor initiating cells as well as, well as other cancer stem cell populations. And it was a great binder. It was a, a really had certain unique physical properties that we couldn't find out there with other CD133 antibodies. So first of all, that part of the patent was very unique. Second part of patents, of course, is methods of use. And that was more what was coming out of our lab. And that was, of course, the fact that we could prove that the CD133 antibody had therapeutic potency in specifically the, our, our models of patient-derived glioblastoma and, and in other models of brain cancer as well. 
So I think we realized, well, we were onto something very unique here. We've created something that's unique. And, and it is so unique that we felt that we also had the skill sets with our multidisciplinary team to be able to, to car- carry out some of the stages of preclinical and clinical development ourselves. So rather than passing off the discovery to the next uh, uh, people, to the next people in the, in, the, in the sort of baton race, which is very respectable. I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a great thing to do, but I think we sort of aspired to, to carry through our discoveries ourselves. And we kind of, we took a really good look at our team at the time. And because of those trainees who had some industry training and who could recognize the field and how competitive our discovery might be and where we were positioned, and then we were really fortunate to get together with Rob Verhagen, who at the time was the CEO of CCAB, um, the, the Center for Commercialization of Antibodies and Biologics. And Rob recognized the uniqueness of our discovery. And then we realized, I think we have the right team. We've got me. I'm a clinician scientist. I understand brain cancer. I've got these great models. We've got Jason, who you know, uh, understood the aspects of antibody engineering that led to the creation of CD133, RWO3. And then we had Rob from the business side who said, let me help you. Let me help you with this. And we had this group of phenomenal trainees who are actually a remarkable new generation of scientists. Because of the program we created, they have expertise in everything. So these are trainees who have rotated through my lab. They've rotated through Jason's lab. They spent time in companies understanding business development. These guys are like really superstar trainees who have uh, expertise in all aspects and interest in all aspects uh, of the pipeline. So we realized, you know what, let's try this. Let's give it a shot. And um, that's how we spun Empirica out of our um, uh, pan-Canadian GBM program. So, so it sounds like you started out with the phenomenal team. Um, I'd love to hear from Ichi, though. What, what were, I mean, somewhere along the way, there were, you know, starting a venture is never a straight line. There are a lot of bumps along the way. What were major obstacles for each of you when you were forming Empirica? And, and we'll talk about the outcome um, that eventually happened in June 2020. But I'd love to hear sort of just from start till, let's say, till, till 2020, what were some of the major obstacles that you guys encountered with, with Empirica Therapeutics? And, and, and just to be clear, not specifically talking scientifically, but just in terms of venture formation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the two major obstacles um, that we had were, did we have the right team? And how can we get investment to keep pushing uh, down the preclinical path and towards uh, phase one trial? And, you know, I think it took some time to answer the first question, did we have the right team? And I and I think everyone stepped up and did a really good job, including particularly one person involved, Parvez Vora from Sheila's lab, who was really pushing the early stages of the science in Empirica. So, and he did a really, really good job. So he deserves some credit there. Um, so yeah, the team and the investment, and I think the investment became the biggest hurdle. And Sheila probably has more to say about that. Yeah, so I think fundraising in the Canadian climate is challenging, especially for a startup. And I found that one thing that is now actually being rectified as we speak is back when we started Empirica, it was really hard to get seed funding because people were not as keen to involve in an early stage company. Um, and the earlier, the earlier, the more risk. And we were seen as being far too high risk. And I think a lot of people were risk averse and just not willing to take a bet on such an early phase company. Whereas I saw in the Canadian pipeline that, you know, people were much more interested in later phase develop, development investments. 
But I think that's starting to change because now I'm speaking to the same companies that we were petitioning all this time, you know, and they're telling me, actually, now we're, we're investing much more in early, early, uh, early company development and in early stage. And we're, we're really looking more at, at seeding that, that, um, that investment. And so I think that that was a challenge with investment, but even a bigger challenge in um, trying to undertake what I would call the made in Canada path that, that Jason and I were considering is again, coming back to that um, infrastructure and resource question. So, you know, we had actually gotten to the pre-IND stage of having our first pre-meeting with Health Canada to find out, you know, it, is this something that could be could gain approval here um, to continue with, with uh, development? And that meeting really surprised me because I had always seen Health Canada as being a very conservative body, but they were very welcoming of our entire um, platform and program and clinical application and um, were really geared towards approving that. And so... I think the regulatory is uh, one thing where in Canada, we don't always have a clear idea of the regulatory needs to develop a drug. But in this case, I found Health Canada very open-minded and very receptive, and the rationale was great. They said, we have to push hard for GBM. We have to take risk because these patients have no other therapies, no other efficacious therapies. And so that's why they were willing to take, take us on as being higher risk. Um, but I think it really comes down to the infrastructure. When we looked around, we needed to figure out, can we manufacture CAR T cells in Canada? And that comes back to the problem with centralized GMP manufacturing capacity. Do we really have that infrastructure and skill set here in Canada? And despite CCRM being a wonderful, wonderful group, they had just launched their manufacturing capacity. And I'm not sure that it was really ready for prime time at the time when we needed them. And so I think that's the problem. A lot of our infrastructure is nascent. It's developing. It's not built yet. And when you're already dealing with a high risk platform, as we were, we can't afford to introduce risk at the level of the, the clinical development. And that's where we found that turning to partners that had, you know, more developed programs, which unfortunately often were in the U.S., is what would help us along. And so it was just that simple question of how long do we have um, to develop? And if we had decided that we could develop the company over 10 or 20 years, it might have worked for us. But we felt this urgent need that we wanted to get our, our therapy to GBM patients as fast as possible. Got it. So, so if if you know if either of you could go back and, just, and it was a you know short duration from the outcome, the outcome was usually successful. Just wondering, would you have changed anything in how you would have done things, knowing what you know now, either within Empirica itself or in terms of besides the infrastructure component, which is loud and clear, anything else the ecosystem would have could have provided to make Empirica's journey a little bit better? Well, I can certainly start with that because there's something I've been thinking about um, a great deal um, as I've been given a new um, uh, position at McMaster. Uh, I'm the new chair of the College of Health Inventors at McMaster University. And what we, what, the reason that we created that entity, which we're just launching as well, is that we realized there was more of a need for a lobby group for scientists who have basic discoveries that they want to translate and that they want to commercialize. <clears throat> and they may have all of the scientific expertise in the world, but they lack the business development ability to, um, to, to be able to, to take their discovery to commercial success. And so... We really look to the university now to help us um, develop partner programs. And I'll cite one such partner program at the Weizmann Institute in Israel. So there, what they do is they pair their scientists up in almost like a, almost like a, 
a, a kind of like a matchmaking company, they actually pair their scientists up with someone from their business uh, school. And so you have a, a bona fide business person paired up with a scientist and they actually task them to, to, to undertake the preclinical and clinical development plan together. And that's where I felt I was really lacking. And if we hadn't met Rob Verhagen, I'm not certain that Empirica would have happened because Rob Verhagen bought, brought all of the business development expertise from outside of our universities, respectively. And so what I would really ask for is that the universities themselves think of ways to engage you know, our cognate partners in the business school to get together with the scientists and actually work on commercial development platforms together and educate each other, right? I would have loved to have a business person by my side um, from McMaster who could have helped us um, with those aspects of business development. So that's one thing I think. And the second thing is universities could actually invest more avidly in developing innovation seed funds that can actually internally support the very difficult to fund startup phase of a promising young company. Yeah. So those are two things that the um, College of Health Inventors at McMaster are going to try to tackle. And when all of it's also a good thing to bring together all of the people who have you know, been successful in the field of health invention, because then we can kind of encourage and mentor the next generation of scientists and hope that the obstacles we faced will be less, less uh, uh, difficult for them. Jason, anything to add to that? I think the other, the other uh, consideration here is, you know, if you can go back in time and redo something, knowing what you know today, you'd always do it, right? Because there, there are newer, better ways to do things in science as time goes on. And I think this is something that um, is really important to think about because the risk that investors saw in us was the fact that we were trying to make a CAR T for a very hard to treat cancer, a very fatal cancer. And there had just been a couple of uh, failed trials with CAR T cells, which are a new modality at that point. They're, you know, they're a cell-based therapy. So, you know, there were tons of questions about whether CAR Ts would ever work for a solid tumor. And of course, there's been lots and lots of additional investment in the meantime to try to get them to work for solid tumors. And just keeping investing in basic research to try to really uh, push it forward is, is super important. Like we can't forget the basic research fuels translation. And I think that's the key is always to, you know, you can go back, you can, you can always do a better job with, with newer, uh, more robust technologies, you know, maybe even do a different type of, of immune cell. Um, so the answer to that question would be yes, but you know, how do you do that? You, you fund, you fund more basic research, right? I think at every, every step of the way for translating something into the clinic, we need more investment, in my opinion, in Canada. Every step of the way from basic research onward, I, I don't, I, you know, there isn't one part of that path that is funded fully, in my opinion. Right. Now, now, both of you, you know, you talked about basic science. Both of you have labs. You've got graduate students, post-grads, or founders, or potential, or future-looking listening founders on on this podcast. Jason, maybe you could start. What, what's what's the hardest thing that you've had to do when going from an academic environment to actually running a venture? And and, and tell us where you kind of got those learnings. So that's just something you absorbed. Um, Sheila talked about, you know, what I'm going to say sort of is hanging around with mentors on the business side. 
how how do you how do you get sort of get that traction? And what would you advise maybe some of your postgrads, your fellows, your 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 graduate students who want to sort of follow the same path? I think um, having a mindset of building building composition of matter is really important. Uh, building a material that can be used uh, or a technology that can be used either for defining a disease a little bit better or uh, being able to actually serve as a drug or a therapeutic. That mindset's really important. Uh, and then being open to learning along the way because things change very quickly over time as new technologies come online. And there's no perfect formula for understanding how all this works and how you can build a company, right? Business is Business seems to be uh, a very uh, dynamic world and you have to be ready to try to embrace it. That's all I can say. It's a roller coaster. <laughs> but accurate, but very accurate. I agree with Jason. And I. Uh, the funny thing is, is that I would have something to tell both my trainees and Jason's trainees. <laughs> so what I would tell, yeah, because you can tell, I hope I'm not coming across as too bossy. Jason can probably tell you more about that later. But I love it. But what I would tell my own, own trainees is, Learn how to speak to people outside of your box. Learn how to speak to people who speak an entirely different language than you, because I'm thinking about when I first met, you know, my team of antibody engineers, and I, I really hadn't, I, honestly, they speak a different language, but you need to learn to work with people who are outside of your direct specialty. And that is the only way that invention and creation and translation happens when you're able to interact in this sort of interdisciplinary fashion. So that's what I would tell my people is don't be afraid to talk to people from all different fields of science and discuss problems with them and, um, and have those discussions. What I would tell Jason's um, trainees is that um, Jason did something that I think is rare um, for a lot of basic scientists. A lot of basic scientists are, are understandably trapped inside the um, you know, beautiful world of whatever it is they study. Right. So say you study one particularly interesting signaling pathway, you could live inside that signaling pathway forever and just sort of think about it all the time and think about cool things you could do to target it and all of this. But the thing that Jason did that I found very different is that he had a way of being able to speak to people again outside of his field to try to understand what are the applications of these tools that I build? What is a useful application of a tool that I build? to solve a clinical problem. And he would readily acknowledge, I'm not a clinician, I don't know the clinical problem, but tell me, would this tool be useful to you to solve a clinical problem? A lot of basic scientists, I know that sounds rudimentary, but a lot of basic scientists don't ask that, that question. They, they just invent something and then they wanna throw it out there and say, you know, here, I invented this thing, it seems great. And then the first question an investor is gonna ask you is, well, yeah, what disease is it gonna be used in? What, what's the clinical application? And then the basic scientist would be like, uh, I don't know. It's just really cool. Don't you like it? And, and that's where you can run into a lot of disappointment. Jason had the humility to, you know, he has the ability and the humility to be able to take his discoveries to clinicians. And he, he's, he, his feelings aren't hurt if you tell him it's, it's not useful. Then he'll just go back to the lab and make something that is useful, that actually meets a, a cl an unmet clinical need. So I think that, that was, that's what I would tell his trainees is, you know, be like your boss in the sense that, you know, you really need to understand what the useful applications of the tools you build could be in order to refine them and, and make sure that, that they're successful. That's great advice. It's, uh, 
very similar to sort of Steve Blank's advice for coders, which is get out of the building. So what I'm hearing is get out of the lab, basically, is, is what you're saying. Nothing, nothing, nothing happens without a team effort, right? And that's another important aspect of all of this, right? Is it, it's a big team effort to develop anything, even to a preclinical stage these days. So, you know, you need a team to make it all happen. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about, so we talked about people. Let's talk about the, about the technology for a second. Just, you're, you're both academic researchers sort of at its core and, and clearly you've lifted well above your weight. How easy is it these days for researchers to get their work out of the academic world? And, and I'm talking more about sort of what's the infrastructure of Canadian research institutions and what's the mindset of those institutions rather than the people um, to get sort of stuff out of the labs and and into the into the real world, if I'll call it that. Is, is that sort of an easy thing to do these days? You still struggle? There's a lot of obstacles. I'd love to hear your perspectives on that from either of you. I think it's, it's a very challenging thing to do. Um, the institutions are... I don't think they've changed a lot in terms of how things are set up. They, you know, if you think you have an invention, you write an invention disclosure and you send it off to your, um, you know, your IP, your IP department who all industry is fearsome of industry does not like to talk to uh, the IP office at any university. Um, But no, you send it off to the IP office and then sometimes they'll get back to you and say, hey, this this could be interesting. Sometimes they they don't get back to you. I think it's it's really on the shoulders of the of the investigator, the principal investigator, to push it if they want to get it out. It's there was it's it's all on their shoulders pretty much, right? Because the universities are typically trying to service hundreds to maybe even thousands of of investigators, and in a small in a very small operation, right? It just it it it's not. Um, doesn't have the the wheels to move things quickly. So I think it's mostly on the shoulders of the investigators to advance anything that they do out into the real world, as you say, to make it useful. And once, once the, the university sees you doing that, then they get behind you and they understand. So they're typically like not, they're, they're, there's a, smaller number of people that get things out of universities than are actually doing things in universities. And sometimes it's just because they don't, like investigators may not know how to get it out or they don't have the right contacts to get it out into the real world for a real application. And I think I agree with Jason. And first I'll try to defend the IP office a little bit. Um, and I'll say- <laughs> Not and, all IP offices are bad. I should, I should be very careful what I say here. Yes, both of us. But no, but um, I think the clear thing is, is that if you look at it from the university's perspective, and let's just say that universities are interested in a few things, I'll ground my statement by saying that there is still an overwhelming um, uh, sort of understanding that researchers um, show their value in two different ways. One, you publish papers, high impact papers if possible. And you speak at um, international conferences and you disseminate your findings and you translate your knowledge. Number two, you train, hopefully a large number of trainees or lecture to a large number of students. That's sort of the traditional value of a university researcher. And on that list, Amol, is not generally, you know, discovering new drugs that can be commercialized and, and patented. Right. So that's not on the list. And the reason for that, I believe, now coming back to the IP offices is because, to be completely honest, most patents that are filed they're not remunerative. Most patents don't generate money. 
most patents are never actually um, acted upon and they gather dust, so to speak. And so the university has to pay to maintain all of these patents. You know, they're not going to keep things going if they see zero activity happening. That comes back to Jason's comment about the investigator being the one who has to push and make things happen. You need to turn your discovery into something of value and don't assume that your IP office is going to do anything with it beyond protect the patent and protect the IP. So, and again, some IP offices do hit um, above their weight, like the one at McMaster. Milo, the McMaster Industry Liaison Office, invested a significant amount of time in attracting industry partners and showcasing some of our um, IP in, in, an, in a sort of protected fashion. And so I think that's, that's a sort of um, added value uh, IP office. I don't think most of them do that. And that's where, as Jason was saying, the investigator has to take that on themselves. So I think that's why scientists who come in with some um, pre-existing business knowledge may be better adap adapted to this than someone like me, a pure academic, a pure clinician scientist with zero business knowledge. I mean, I, I you know, I, I have problems even managing my personal finances. So, you, you know, my husband has to do it for me, to be honest. So, so that's where you really do need that partnership, a, a really... Um, a, a sort of a, a partnership that is well-determined ahead of time um, to, to reach that level of productivity. Got it. So, so, so Jason, I, I think you've just spun out another venture um, around pancreatic cancer and, and some of the pushback sort of, I get when, when, when I talk about sort of the excitement that I have about this field is, is, you know, from the outside, the perception is a lot of people, or, and I'm talking sort of Canadian researchers are reluctant to pursue commercialization route. You know, we're, we're Canadian. I think Sheila, you said it before. Um, we don't necessarily brag about the things we do. Um, there's a little bit of sort of an inferiority complex is, is, is that attitude of researchers changing though within academia? Like, like are they actually more eager to come out and, and commercialize or Sheila, are they stuck on kind of what you just finished, which is I need the public, you know, I, I need the publications, I need the events and I need the training. I think, um, I think it's changing Amal. I, like the younger generation of um, investigators that have come in after me, for example, they're all keen to start companies but they're, they're waiting for the right moment, the right time and, and to take their best shot. So I, I think it's changing. They've seen some really good role models in Canada, uh, start companies and at least get them to the point where they've been acquired or even um, IPO'd. For example, there's a great company um, in, in Hamilton, right? Fusion, Fusion yeah. um, Pharma. Uh, repair therapeutics. There's some there's some really good uh, success stories in Canada that have been um, initiated by academics, and so and and these and these people are are real role models for next generation uh, investigators that are just starting their labs. So I think it's changing. Yeah, I agree with Jason. I think it's changing as well. And keep in mind. Uh, Amol, it's very difficult these days to get a tenure track position at a university. And so Jason and I always have to keep in mind that if we have 20 trainees in our lab, then maybe only one or two of them are going to go on to secure an academic position to become an academic scientist. And many of the others are going to be attracted to industry, right? There are, of course, other career paths, like some of them might end up editors at a scientific journal, you know, and some of them may go into teaching or into nonprofits that um, that look at funding scientific discovery. But, you know, by and large, the, the larger number of our trainees now are finding their career paths in industry. And so I think 
the more that we um, that we alert them to the possibility that founding their own company and taking a shot on goal, like Jason said, um, is possible. Um, you know, they, they do have many good examples, as he said, to follow. That's great advice. Um, I want I want to talk a bit, sort of, you know, what what happens with the current system in terms of where where ventures land. And around the time that Empirica Therapeutics was bought, which which I believe was around June 2020, um, by Bayer and Versant. You know, there was a previous company, Blue Rock Therapeutics, which also came out of sort of Toronto, which is purchased by similar players. You want to notice what Blue Rock's head office um, is now in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Some of the research still happens here. Now, we can't force ventures to stay. They have to go where it's best for them. And so what, what I'm curious, though, is do you think this will be the normal evolution of the Canadian biotechnology ecosystem? Or do we need to do a better job at sort of attracting ventures to become anchor companies here? And and does that just circle back, Sheila, to your sort of you know concept about value manufacturing, or is there more to it than that? Um, well, that's a great question. And um, actually, I'm happy to tell you that there's a huge amount of conversation going on right now at the federal government level, at the funding uh, a scientific body level, um, addressing your question exactly, which is good, because the first thing we have to do is have a, a focused dialogue about this, this problem. And the problem is exactly as you say, if we pass off our discoveries and everything, all of our you know, discoveries go to the United States, then we don't have a way of retaining um, biotech expertise here and creating, and the anchor companies are critical to that. And so I think there's different models for success now. And that's one thing that I recently spoke at a seminar that addressed exactly this issue, the fact that there's different success stories for how you can commercialize. And what we did with Empirica, I hope could be an example of that too. So Empirica was acquired by Century Therapeutics, as you mentioned, which is a large company based in Philadelphia. That's where their head office is. But we negotiated with Century and we negotiated pretty hard. We said, look, all of the interests that you have in the brain cancer program this brain cancer program, you know, was founded in Canada, it was born in Canada, it grew up in Canada, and we'd like it to stay in Canada and continue to develop in Canada. And, you know, if Jason and I are the parents of that respective company, wouldn't it be smart to keep the company close to the original founders so that we can continue to nurture and, and develop the science that's happening there and make sure that you get everything that we're doing into clinical trials? And fortunately for us, Century agreed with us. That's why we created um, a Canadian subsidiary. And so what we did is that essentially um, Century itself created the brain cancer branch of, of Century, which is called Century Canada, and it's based in the McMaster Innovation Park. So we successfully negotiated to keep the science in Canada, to keep the HQP and the people in Canada, and to help continue to build our biotech sector in this thriving environment in the McMaster Innovation Park. And we were hired on as scientific advisors to the company for four years, which is a long time. And the reason they wanted to retain us for that long is they want us to see the program through to fruition. And they want us to see it through to clinical trials. So I think that model is successful in the sense that we've attracted investment into glioblastoma, which as Jason pointed out, most drug developers back away from that disease because it's so deadly and we've not had any successes. We've attracted 50 to $80 million of U.S. investment so far to McMaster Innovation Park to Century Canada, and much more will go in in the future as the R&D continues. 
And we have now um, uh, 11 people in the company and it's going to build to 14 or 15 by the end of the year. They're all Canadian scientists that have been hired to work in Century Canada. And so in that way, we're building our biotech sector internally. We haven't let go of everything. We're collaborating with the, with the home base of the company in Philadelphia. But if you go to the Century Canada website, you'll see they have a map. And on the map, there's four places. There's Philadelphia, where's the home office. There's um, New Jersey, which is manufacturing. There's Seattle, which is another scientific branch. And then there's Hamilton. That's the brain cancer branch. And by the way, brain cancer is their second lead program. So this is, uh, to me, still could be an example of what we would consider um, success uh, for Canada in the biotech sector. And um, I think there are different models of success, but I'm hoping that Century Canada could, you know, eventually become an anchor company as well. It's phenomenal. You put Hamilton on the map. Great. Jason, any, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, my thought is that um, th it's a real risk that, that companies are going to have a U.S. presence. Um, I think that's why it's going to be really important for, have, for Canada to have a couple of major, major success stories. Like when, when I think of anchor company, I think of like a Merck or a, you know, a Roche or mm -hmm. a major a GSK or, you know, one of these companies that's been around for a long time, they have lots of products and they're stable, right? They're mm -hmm. a blue chip essentially company. And I think that's what Canada needs. It needs something like that. That's got a very stable, um, you know, product pipeline that, that can continue to be developed and stay in Canada. Uh, I think that's that once that's here, either in Toronto or in, in Montreal or in Vancouver or somewhere, then that really starts to build uh, confidence that the venture guys can come and, and be successful in the long run. Got it. Now I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little bit of a, maybe a contrarian view. So I'd I'd love to get your perspectives on this. You know, so we've we've spent most of this podcast talking about sort of trying to build the biotechnology ecosystem, um, you know, lift it up if you will. And and some of the issues and and the common ones. These are nothing new. Are sort of biotechnology in Canada is hampered by lack of talent, lack of infrastructure, lack of capital. Um, again, this has been going for years and years. I'm wondering if if we're looking at it the right way, and I'd love to get your perspective of that. And by that, I mean, we always seem to want to compare ourselves to Boston, which is which is you know the hub of biotechnology, if you will, or San Francisco, both centers that have been doing this a lot longer than we have. So my question is, you know, despite the fact that we're not Boston, San Francisco, is that the right comparison? And because maybe we're actually the right size for how long we're doing. And this is, you know, to use a healthcare term, maybe this is just the natural history of how ecosystems should be built. And so I'm wondering if, are we really behind or are we where we should be? And just, we need to continue to grow the system organically. I'd love to get your sort of pushback and thoughts on that. I would say we are where we are and we have to grow the system organically or else, it, or else it won't grow. Um, I mean, Cannot Labs was in Toronto. It was a it was a very big success, but then it was sold. So, I think you know everyone would like to, every every city would like to be a Boston or San Francisco. That's not a Boston or San Francisco when it comes to the just the amount of uh, research power and infrastructure. Um, so, is it a bad thing to try to aspire to be? like those cities not necessarily but will we ever be one of those uh 
cities, I, I'm not sure. It's possible. It's possible. I, you know, I'm an optimist at the end of the day. So I would like to see us um, be competitive at that level. But yeah, I think we're probably, we are where we are right now. And we're not there, that's for sure. Well, I agree we're not there, but I see Amol's point. I mean, I think this speaks to what I was saying earlier, that there are different models of what we would label as success in, in biotechnology and in innovation. And I don't think we need to be Boston or San Francisco in order to succeed. I would prefer to say that Canada needs to find its own path to success. And simply by the you know, population and demographic differences between the Canada and the US, I would say in terms of all of the arguments we made earlier about critical mass and manufacturing platforms, and even just the number of people we have here, the number of universities and, and you know, the number of scientists, we simply can't be the same as Boston or San Francisco. We're going to have to evolve into our own model of biotechnology and innovation success. And I would say that, uh, you know, in that regard, I don't think we're a failure, Amol. I think we're, I think we're in evolution. You know, I think, I think that's the best way to describe it. I think Canada's biotechnology sector is an evolution, and we're evolving in a positive direction. And we're recognizing the challenges and the obstacles, and we're trying to craft solutions to them on the federal and provincial levels. Universities are aware of the dialogue that we're having now. They're trying to address it in new and creative ways. But I think the overall answer is something that I talked to Jim Till about, which was, you know, as, as uh, scientists in Canada, we don't have the same funding envelope as our peers in the U.S. And that forces us to be twice as ingenious, twice as creative, and, and even more enterprising because we have to make do with less. And sometimes that's kind of like the cauldron that you know, creates the, the actual very surprising and serendipitous uh, invention. Mother is the necessity of invention, yeah. Yes, and so that's where I think um, we can still succeed, but I don't think our path to success is gonna be the same as Boston or San Francisco. Yeah, no, that's, and, and, and I guess what, what you know, I hear is, these always, when people say that those are restrictions and they are, it seems to be said in the context of being inferior to Boston and San Francisco, as opposed to these are obstacles that every location faces. Uh, you know, most of the U.S., if you're not Boston and San Francisco, are in the same bucket. So, I, you know, I, I'm just wondering whether this is, again, I just go back to maybe this is just the natural evolution, as you said, and we just need to continue to do better over time. But it's not, we're not in a bad place. Um both of you are connected to, I'm sure, the wider biotech ecosystem in Canada, and I do not want to get into any political slurs or, mud, or provincial mudslinging, to be clear. But I would love to get your opinion on how both of you or each of you thinks Ontario is doing relative to other provinces. And the two I'm obviously going to highlight, because uh, you've already mentioned companies from those areas, are BC and Quebec. Silence. <laughs> No, no mudslinging. All right, I'm just curious. No, I mean, <laughs> no, no. I think I think uh, Ontario's doing great, and they have to. Con they've done a really good job at investing in uh, in biotech in the last, I would say, ten to fifteen years, and and research, and they should keep continue to do so. I, I mean, we're doing great, and so is uh, you know Quebec and BC are also doing great. So, you know, we it's a good it's a good time. Jason is diplomatic. Um, I, so I, I, uh, I think that uh, I just want to say that I think Quebec scientists have been elevated 
by their very large envelope of provincial scientific funding that has clearly shown a huge um, payoff. And so I would ask the Ontario government to closely look at the wonderful programs the Quebec government has launched on the provincial level to fund science and how that has actually um, increased the value of what's come out of the Quebec scientific community. Because I think they've definitely done something right in increasing the, the, the funding opportunities for, for science in Quebec are more abundant and they've paid off. So I think they've justified their existence and I would love Ontario to see that. Similarly, BC has always been seen as a kind of incubator um, for, for development. And some of our some of those seminal front runners to become anchor companies are out there, right? Absolutely. Like Absalera. Like yeah. And, and they're building a big uh, sort of, you know, a lot of infrastructure around that company. So that right. Yeah. So I think I think Vancouver is ahead in terms of how smartly they've planned their infrastructure development. So where I'd like to see Ontario um, maybe follow uh, behind uh, Quebec and, and BC would be in those two areas specifically. The, um, the value of the funding programs in, in Quebec at the provincial level and then the way that BC has unfolded infrastructure could be lessons for Ontario. Yeah, and, and that I think it's the latter part that's where I was focusing on is, you know, they, they seem to, at least at the from, from the outside world anyway, which, which I'll put myself in, seem to be doing a much better lift in taking taking technology out of academia and actually at least trying to make it into innovation and, and doing ventures. And I'm wondering whether that's a structural issue or is that just a, you know, an academic mindset that Quebecers and, you know, the West Coast versus the East Coast kind of concept, is that where, like, where does that difference lie um, is, is what I was sort of wondering. And it sounds like, I, I guess you're saying, Sheila, it's more on the infrastructure side. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I don't think it's on the academic side. I think the academic uh, desire to to translate research is just as strong in Ontario as in the other two provinces. It would it, ha- it has to lie in the structural side of how things are set up. Yeah, and I would really say I would pinpoint it to the level of provincial government where um, I think Ontario should talk to BC and Quebec. Yeah, mm-hmm. sounds good. We'll get that meeting set up. Uh, so, so listen, there's lots of exciting stuff happening in biotechnology writ large. Um, obviously, the space that both of you work in, which is, um, you know, regenerative medicine. But what I'd like to know from each of you is what do you think maybe the one, maximum two, most exciting technologies are in your domain that are literally game changers for the next three to five years? And this is obviously guesswork, but what are you really, really excited about now? CRISPR. <laughs> That was an easy answer. Surprise. (laughs) No surprise there. So I will tell you um, from my side, uh, um, Amul, I think think it's honestly in the realm of immunotherapy. Um, There there are developments in immunotherapy happening right now that I think hold so much promise. And one of my favorite um, ideas uh, springs from the fact that in glioblastoma, it's such a complex and heterogeneous tumor that it's really unlikely that one drug, a monotherapy, could ever cure such a complex and heterogeneous disease. So it's clear that we need to have a kind of polytherapeutic approach, a combination therapy that would work um, in the future for such a tumor. And on the immunotherapy side, there's this absolutely brilliant invention. It's called a universal CAR-T. And this is a CAR-T that not only can it go after multiple, multiple targets expressed by a tumor at the same time, but it can also adapt 
such that when the tumor changes its expression of cell surface receptors, so does the universal CAR T. So it's a dynamic therapy that adapts with along with the tumor and kind of tries to keep pace with GBM. Because that's the problem with glioblastoma is it evolves far too quickly and we can never keep up with it. So I have great hope for the universal CAR T cell, which I think might be the next um, promising uh, immunotherapy that might work for brain cancer. Wow, that sounds fascinating. That's amazing. So, so we're at the top of the hour. So the final question I have for, for each of you, and I ask everyone on the guest, um, and, and I'd be really interested on today's show, particularly as, you know, because obviously coming from, from different perspectives, each of you, um, one a clinician and, and, you know, both scientists, but, but one all mainly just in the lab is, you know, as we reinvent is, is, is what I call it, sort of the current health system and we try and make it better. I do, you know, I interview digital healthcare founders as well as biotechnology, all these things to change the healthcare system. What I'm curious about is what's the one thing that each of you wants to make sure doesn't change in our healthcare system as we move forward? What's sort of the pinnacle that, that we just, we, we can't let go of? So I'll tell you, Amol, from my perspective, um, the key is the universal healthcare. So right back to Tommy Douglas, right back to, you know, every Canadian being, being, um, uh, having access and being treated the same. And back to my residency when, you know, we took such good care at St. Michael's Hospital when I worked there of the homeless population. And I was really proud of that fact that they, they were in the same kind of good health as, as other people, despite living on the streets in the frigid cold, because we took care of every Canadian. And that's actually why I also um, turned down some of the jobs I was offered, offered in the U.S., because I couldn't bear the idea of turning a patient away because they didn't have insurance to cover my neurosurgical procedure. So I think the universality is the one aspect I want to preserve. Um, and again, we're going to have to change our models of healthcare, as is very apparent after COVID. And you know whether we have a whether we have to resort to looking at private healthcare options or you know that supplement the public healthcare options, as long as we adhere to the principle of healthcare for everyone, you know the delivery is secondary. It's just the principle of universality that everyone has access. Got it, Jason. I would say that, you know, the, the re, more recent uh, idea of personalized medicine needs to stay because for some, particularly for diseases like, diseases like brain cancer, um, it's going to require a personalized approach to treat people, to, to try to get it right. Other, you know, infectious diseases like COVID, sure, you, you know, you can use the same vaccine on almost everyone, but for certain diseases, personalized medicine is absolutely going to be required for cures. I agree. Interesting. So, so I know from this, you know, we're at the end, the podcast, you've got lots of graduate student postgrads, everyone excited, wanting to contact you. What's the best way to stay in touch with each of you? If they want to get in touch with your labs or find out what the work you're doing, what's, what's the best way to reach out? You can just um, go to my website and my email's on there. So that's the easiest way to do it. And the same for me. We both have really nice, uh, um, I hope, uh, nice to look at, nice to browse websites for both of our labs. <laughs> and we would welcome students to, to go and take a peek and see if anything there interests them. Fantastic. Thank you very much to the both of you for spending this time. And uh, I certainly learned a lot. So, and I appreciate all the work you're doing. It was great. Thank, Thank you, you so for much. Having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reboot Health. I hope you found it insightful. Please join us again for our next guest as we continue to explore the fascinating changes that will take our health system into the digital age. 
Until then, stay well and stay safe.